0: Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Uh, I'm Matt Gray, Chief of Sustainability for the City of Cleveland and a proud City Club member. Before I go further, I just want to thank uh, Kathy Lyon in our Office of Sustainability, our plastics expert, um, and does much work around this topic, so thank you. Uh, I'm pleased to introduce today's 2018 State of the Great Lakes speaker, the Professor of Chemistry and Chair of the Department of Geology and Environmental Sciences at the State University of New York at Fredonia. Dr. Sherry A. Mason. Uh, The mention of pollution in our lakes, rivers, and oceans often evokes images of sea turtles trapped in plastic rings that bind aluminum cans together. Uh, But while traveling, garbage patches affect our oceans, fish, and wildlife. The Great Lakes are experiencing dangerous levels of pollution from the smallest of particles. According to a 2016 study from the Rochester Institute of Technology, approximately 22 million pounds of plastic flows into the Great Lakes every year, with the highest concentrations reported in Lake Michigan and Lake Erie. Much of this pollution is comprised of microplastics, small particles that are added to toothpaste, body wash, and other personal care items. And at one time, Lake Erie had had more microplastic pollution than any other body of water on Earth. While microbeads aren't toxic, they can absorb toxins, and are often too small to be captured by wastewater treatment systems. To combat this growing problem, the Microbeads Free Waters Act of 2015 was passed, preventing companies from using microbeads in their products. However, the problem persists and is now exacerbated by microfibers, tiny fibers of acrylic, nylon, spandex, and polyester that are now evident in the Great Lakes. Given products' disposable nature and the ubiquity of plastic and other synthetic materials in our daily lives, how can we solve a problem that is so tethered to our lifestyle? Today's speaker is at the forefront of research on plastic pollution in freshwater ecosystems. Originally from Dallas, Texas, Dr. Mason earned her bachelor's degree from the University of Texas at Austin and completed her doctorate in chemistry at the University of Montana as a NASA Earth Earth System Science scholar. Uh, Though her background is in atmospheric chemistry, her research group is now poised at the forefront of research on plastic pollution. As, principal, uh, as co-principal investigator on the first ever survey for plastic pollution within the open waters of the Great Lakes, her research group is among the first to study the prevalence and impact of plastic pollution within freshwater ecosystems. And as such, has been featured within hundreds of mass media articles, including the New York Times uh, and NPR's All Things Considered. So ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming today's speaker, Dr. Sherry A. Mason.
1: Hi, thank you all for being here. It is such an honor to be invited to present here, um, following in the footsteps of some incredible um, people uh, much better than, than myself, but um, it is, is such an honor. Um, I know when we think of the Great Lakes and we think of environmental issues surrounding the Great Lakes, we typically think of algal blooms and invasive species. Um, and these, these topics are definitely an issue, but I wanna talk about one that's a little lo- less well-known, um, and that is plastic. Uh, plastic as a material was created at the dawn of the 20th century. Um, it's an amazing material, it is so moldable that you can make you know, anything from a bottle, to a chair, to a comb, to a cigarette lighter, to a Frisbee, to a baby doll, to buttons, all out of the same material. And there's no other material like that on this planet. You can't do this with glass. You can't do this with metal. And that's what makes plastic so attractive. It's also very lightweight, so then transporting those products after you make them is much easier to do. It's very durable. They won't break as you go through that whole process, right? Unfortunately, these same features that make them so attractive from an industrial standpoint are of what can, of concern when it comes to the environment. They're very lightweight. They get transported all over the globe. And as the polar ice caps are melting, millions of tons of plastic are being re released in the environment. They're durable. They don't break down. Unlike natural materials, which biodegrade, there are organisms that can use them for food and turn them back into soil. Plastics don't. Instead, they go through a process called photodegradation, where sunlight will make them brittle. Many of us have experienced this. And then cars drive over them, or we step on them, or the wind and water act on them, causing them to break into these smaller and smaller pieces. But all the while, in terms of the chemistry, nothing has really changed. They're still plastics. They're still the polymers. Um, so they were created at the dawn of the 20th century, but it wasn't really until World War II that the infrastructure for the mass production of plastics took place. And when the war movement ended, industry turned its attention to the consumer. There's an iconic 1955 Time Laugh magazine ad entitled "Throwaway Living with the subheading Disposable Items Cut Down on Household Chores. This is an iconic ad represented by that subheading where we change from a society of reusing and repurposing materials to one of disposability. And what is inherent in that transition in our society was a reliance upon plastic for those disposable products. And so at the end of World War II, you see this exponential increase in plastics production to the point where, in 2015, we were making over 300 million tons of this material. This material that's very lightweight, right? So making 300 million tons, which is a mass, means an incredible amount of plastic. Plastic that's durable, plastic that doesn't biodegrade. So where does it go? Because it's not going back to the earth, it's not going back to the soil, um, and studies are showing, unfortunately, that somewhere between five and ten percent of this plastic every year is ending up in our water. In 2012, a study that was done based upon 2012 numbers estimated eight million tons of this material was in eight billion tons of this material was ending up in our oceans. And as a topic of scientific research, that's really where this started. It started in the world's oceans. But in 2004, a United Nations report came out. 80% of what we find in the world's oceans is coming from land. And so when that report came out, the story that we started telling, the story I started telling my students, was that plastic bag you see blowing in the wind. We've all seen it blowing in the wind, right? (laughs) Ends up in a river, and that flows to a lake and all lakes flow ultimately to the oceans. And so that plastic is making its way through freshwater systems. We happen to live on the largest freshwater ecosystem in the world. Because it's our backyard, I think sometimes we forget (laughs) how, what an amazing resource this is. This isn't the largest in the United States. It's not the largest in the Northern Hemisphere. It's the largest on the entire planet. We have people fighting wars over water, people dying for water, and it's our backyard. We have it right here, clean potable water, but we know those of us in this region especially, that we've kind of used it as a dumping ground <laughs> right, um, for a very long time. Um, so I'm here to talk about that kind of intersection between the Great Lakes and this incredible material that is plastic. Um, <clears throat> we started in the Great Lakes and um, our first expedition, funded actually by the Great Lakes Brewing Company, thank you very much, <laughs> um, looking within the Great Lakes for plastic pollution. Um, and this is basically what we've found over the couple of years that we've been doing this, is that as you follow the flow of water, the counts of microplastic or the counts of plastic within the waterways increase. So as you go from Lake Superior to Lake Huron, you're around 7,000 pieces of plastic per square kilometer. In Lake Michigan, that increases to 17,000. In Lake Erie, that increases to 46,000. And in Lake Ontario, That number increases to a staggering quarter of a million pieces of plastic per square kilometer. This makes Lake Erie and Lake Ontario rival the dirtiest parts of the world's oceans. These are our Great Lakes, right? This is our backyard. We went from looking in the Great Lakes to looking in the rivers, going upstream from the lakes. Um, And there we see that the counts go up even higher. Right, because you're closer to the people, and ultimately people, we are the source of this material, and there's less water for it to be diluted. So in terms of abundance, you're gonna find a higher abundance within the rivers. Most recently, we've turned our attention to consumer products, things that use water, um, things like sea salt, beer, and tap water. And what we found in these, this study Sea salt that was all purchased within United States stores, we found an average of 212 pieces of plastic per kilogram. Now, a kilogram is a lot of sea salt. (laughs) Um, So keep that in mind. Um, Looking at beer that was brewed using Great Lakes water, we found an average of four pieces of plastic per liter of beer. And looking then at tap water, which was sourced across the globe, 159 samples Collected across the entire uh, planet, we found on average five and a half pieces of plastic per liter. So, what, is the, what do these averages kind of mean in terms of an actual consumption of people? So, we made some assumptions here in terms of how much sea salt a person would take in. Um, given that if you follow like World Health Organization guidelines and you don't eat any more than that recommended guidelines, um, you, would in consume, you would end up consuming 180 pieces of plastic in a year. If you assume that you drink one beer a day, you would end up consuming 520 pieces of plastic in a year. And by drinking your recommended amount of tap water every day, um, you would on average, we average men and women here, because men are supposed to drink more water than women, you would end up consuming over 5,000 pieces of plastic. So 88% of your plastic consumption would be coming simply from your tap water, simply from drinking tap water. So when this study came out, I thought, oh, this is going to shock people. People are going to be like, we need to solve this problem. And instead, what I heard was, we need to drink more bottled water. Because <laughs> you know, packaging water in plastic will, of course, mean that it has less plastic, right? So I spent my Christmas break <laughs> studying bottled water. <laughs> We sampled uh, 259 individual bottles purchased. They were represented 11 different brands that, again, were sourced across the globe from nine different countries. Um, every single step of the process was videotaped. From the moment it was purchased off of a store shelf to when it was shipped to when it was opened in my lab and everything we did in the lab. 24 hours a day for three months was videotaped because if you're going to take on the bottled water industry, which is a multi-billion dollar industry, you want to make sure that you have photographic evidence of everything you did. Um, So what we found, and I'm going to put this in comparison to the tap water, 88% of our tap water samples showed evidence of plastic pollution. Bottled water, 93% showed evidence of microplastic pollution. Comparing the same size particles that we were able to do in the tap water study, we found twice as much plastic within bottled water as compared to tap water. Our our science, science is constantly changing. So in this study, we were able to actually go down to smaller size particles. And when you incorporate the smaller particles, we were actually able to find a total of 325 pieces of plastic per liter of bottled water that you're drinking. What's really important with these smaller sized particles, like I know that large particles are unsightly and nobody wants to see plastic bags blowing in the wind or stuck in a tree. But as the particles get smaller and smaller, they're actually more of a concern when it comes to um, ecosystem health and human health. Because these particles are the ones that are more easily ingested. And these smallest particles in these studies, these can actually make their way across your gastrointestinal tract, travel in your blood get lodged in organs like kidneys and liver, and even make it across the blood-brain barrier and end up in your brain? What are the human health impacts? These are the questions that we still don't fully have answers to, Um, but if you have any questions on that, I'm happy to to talk about that. I've probably depressed you all. Yes? Okay. So (laughs) we can't end (laughs) on that depressing note. We always have to talk about how what are we gonna do about this right this is the problem what are we gonna do about this so I want everybody to picture that this happens when they get home tonight they walk in and they find that somebody has left the kitchen faucet running something is clogging the drain and water is pouring out of the kitchen sink it's all over the floor it's running into the living room it's soaking into the carpet what are you gonna do I venture to say everybody in this room, everybody listening, would have the same reaction. They would run over and turn off the tap. They would stop the flow. And that is the ultimate solution here. We can talk about cleaning up the lakes. We can talk about cleaning up the water that's all over our kitchen floor. But you don't start cleaning it until you turn off the tap. right? And that's where we have to start. So the solutions are really focused on (coughs) that, on stopping, okay? We are the problem, but that also means that we are the solution. And so we focus on single-use disposable items. Remember that transition, 1955? That iconic Time Life magazine ad where we transition from a society of reusing of repurposing, of fixing things to one of disposability, that was inherent to making use of plastic, right? So if we focus on these single-use disposable plastic items, that's how we turn off the tap. That's the first step. And by doing that, by refusing single-use disposable items, the straws, the bags, the bottles, we can be the change we wish to see in the world. And with that, I want to thank you all, thank my funders, and open it up for questions.
2: Hi, I'm Stephanie Jansky, Director of Programming here at the City Club of Cleveland, and today we're enjoying our 2018 State of the Great Lakes Forum with Dr. Sherry A. Mason, Professor of Chemistry and Chair of the Department of Geology and Environmental Sciences at the State University of New York at Fredonia. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. Welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our staff will try to work it into the program. Holding our microphone today is our Youth Forum Council Chair, Tiolu Orsanya. May we have the first question, please.
0: It sounds like this is a pretty international problem. Are you working with scientists from other countries to address it?
1: There are scientists across the globe, I can tell you, that are addressing this and and dealing with this problem, and I am part of a United Nations working group. United Nations, by the way, puts plastic pollution and other synthetic chemicals second only to climate change in terms of the um, impact on the ability of our species to survive. So they're taking this very seriously, and I'm part of a working group that's developing, basically writing the book on how we sample and process samples for plastic pollution. Hi, Um, what role did President Obama's ban on um, the microplastics in our household products have um, on the pollution in our Great Lakes, and what steps would you like to see to go beyond that? Um, I was um, I I was amazed when that um, passed Uh, to be honest I never when I heard it was proposed I thought oh well that's really sweet this is gonna go nowhere (laughs) Um, but it passed with bipartisan support um, and that was that was really incredible Um, and it's not something it's not a regulation so it's not something that can be changed by like say the next administration Um, and it became effective as of July 1st of this year so only about a month ago Um, so I think it will take time before we really kind of fully understand. Um, microbeads, I am, anytime I gave a talk, and I, you know, I gave lots of talks in support of that legislation, both at the, the, you know, regional to, to, um, Uh, State to national level Um, microbeads were not the only type of microplastic we find and in fact They only represented about 10 to 15 percent of what we found in the Great Lakes So it was a significant piece of the pie and it was an easy one because nobody wanted plastic in their face wash Nobody wanted plastic in their toothpaste So it was an easy one to tackle and and so it was one that we needed to tackle right? So it probably took care of about 10 to 15 percent of the microplastics that are in the Great Lakes Right, Um, if with the ban becoming effective. Um, But that means that there's still, (laughs) you know, 85 to 90% of the plastics that we need to be looking at. Um, So, what I would like to see moving forward are things that other countries have done, banning or putting fees on bags. Um, I'm very supportive of fees on bags, especially if they increase over time, so that a plastic bag, you actually see the cost of a plastic bag. And you see that it's equal to the cost of just buying a reusable bag. And that really encourages people to change behaviors. Um, similarly, I like to start seeing um, straws not being given out with every single drink. So, you know, straws suck. <laughs> right. um, and I really encourage people to kind of change their behaviors. Think about things that they can do in their everyday life um, to, to reduce their the way that um, plastic comes into their lives.
2: Hi, I'm wondering, are there plans locally and or uh, more broadly globally to educate the public about um, their role when it comes to littering? For example, having an anti-littering campaign, again, changing the behaviors you were talking about, where at every event there's plastic bottled water, and then also... Um, Maybe trying to get people like Jeff Bezos to put money into creating alternative packaging for plastics since he has a huge, it seems to me he should be investing in companies to do that because he can then just use the products in his other companies.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's definitely happening, right? We have sustainable Cleveland. There are anti-littering campaigns um, in most cities across the United States. Um, and, and and I know, I mean, it's it's an uphill battle because basically we're fighting against white noise, and there's so much more money um, that gets put into bottled water, right? <laughs> and you have Jennifer Aniston, you know, advertising her smart water, right? And it's, it's frustrating because cities can't compete with that um, but I think you know it's happening I mean there's individuals doing it there's cities doing it I think that there is a lot of movement and there are a lot of people um, that are looking at different types of packaging mushrooms for example can be used in um, bamboo plates and things like this right that um, you can make edible or you know natural things that actually truly do biodegrade which our current Things that are currently labeled as bioplastics unfortunately don't, unless they're in an industrial composting facility. And they really shouldn't be labeled as bioplastics because they're really not. So there's a lot of greenwashing. And so part of that I would like to see is a definition. Um, And it's one of the things that we're putting in the United Nations Working Group report is a definition of what is a bioplastic, what is, you know, so defining these things. But that needs to also happen at a national level. The way that at one time organic had no meaning, right? And then they said, no, organic, if you're gonna say that something is organic, it has to abide by these principles, right? And so we need to see a similar thing happen with plastics and and green plastic labeling so that things are properly identified. So I think there are a lot of people who are working on this, but I'd like to see, of course, more. And that's why I give so many talks.
0: (laughs) First, thank you. Um, So kind of building off of that, Events are where I see really some of the biggest use of those disposable plastics, and we've um, had the we're seeing
1: a shift towards those more kind of corn-based plastics. Did any of your studies um, account for any of those? And you know, how do you see them fitting? You know, making that shift is going to help, but it's still technically a plastic. How do you sort of feel about those? Yeah, um, what, what really needs to happen is industrial composting, right, um, happening in, in cities across the nation so that those corn-based products are actually truly biodegraded. Because um, putting those into a trash can or those ending up in the water is really no different than any other type of plastic, ultimately, which is sad. Um, our initial studies, um, we we. Um, uh, Because we were the first in the field, and it was about getting the data out because you have to have the data out so that you can ask for money, um, which was very difficult when you're kind of breaking new information into a field. So, um, and our technology was not where it was, so we didn't do a lot with regard to identifying the plastics in those early studies, right? With like for our bottled water study and our later studies, we look at the different types of polymers. And we don't really—I mean—and so in our later stuff, we haven't really seen a whole lot in the corn-based. I mean, it's polypropylene, polyethylene, vast majority, you know. And so um, now, polyethylene can be derived from, say, um, you know, landfill gas or something like that. So it can come from a green, quote-unquote, resource. But if it's polyethylene, it's still polyethylene, and it has the same impact on the, the watershed. So.
0: Hi, Sam. Thanks for coming back to Cleveland. Um, I'd like to break the City Club rules and ask two questions. The first um, has to do with human health effects. I, um, we talked a little bit about this when you visited us yesterday, but yeah. if you could summarize what's known and what's still unknown about the human health effects of microplastics and your work in that area. And secondly, I noticed that there are fewer um, Microfibers in per liter of beer than there are per liter of water. And I know in the Middle Ages people used to drink uh, beer with preference to water because it was healthier. It and is. can you state unequivocally today that beer is still healthier than water? <laughs>
1: Based on all evidence, beer is, in fact, cleaner than tap water. And so by all means, you should be drinking your beer. And I especially am fond of the Great Lakes Edmund Fitzgerald. So you have me on record. That's my my beer of choice. We buy it by the case. And um, so there you go. Um, Human health effects. So um, this is not something that I myself study, because I'm not an ecotoxicologist. But I read all of the science on these things. And this is what we know. Um, we know that there are chemicals in plastic, and we know that there are chemicals that bind to plastic when they're in the Great Lakes. Um, so these are plasticizers, right? Those are in the plastic to begin with from the moment it's manufactured. And then you have things like polyaromatic hydrocarbons or polychlorinated biphenyls that will adsorb to the surface of the plastic. Now, we know that there are human health effects associated with all of these chemicals. Like, PCBs were banned because of their known human health impacts, right? And so if it's on the plastic, and then that plastic is ingested, it's going to be moving that chemical into the food supply. So what we know is that there are chemicals in and on plastic that have human health effects. They, these have been tied to things like certain types of cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, prostate cancer. Um, they've been tied to obesity in children under the age of six months. They've been tied to ADHD and autism. Um, and, um, Uh, other human health, decreased sperm counts, okay? So a a variety of human health impacts um, that are associated with the chemicals that are in and on plastics. What we don't know is, and we know that those chemicals are in people, like that's unequivocal, right? We just don't know how much of it is making its way into us from plastic versus other sources. And it's gonna take a really long time, to be honest, to tease that information out because from the moment a child is born, they're already exposed to over three hundred synthetic chemicals. From the moment of birth. You know, so from in vitro they're already being exposed to these things. So there is no, you know, In the way in science, right, you always have a control, and you compare something to the control. We have no control because we're all contaminated. And so it makes it really, really difficult, and I would even near say impossible. Um, And so I advocate for the precautionary principle. (laughs) If, If something is suspected to have an impact, then you stop doing it. Right? <laughs> it's that simple. Rather than, oh, we need all of this evidence before we change our behaviors, right? Um, so, and, and the way that our laws are currently written in the United States, unfortunately, it is very much the opposite. Um, it is chemicals are put on the market um, something like t- an average of three per day new chemicals without any human health impact testing, none is required. Once it's put on the market, it is now on us to prove that a chemical is negatively affecting us in order for it to be banned. But we're not the one making the billions of dollars in profits off of the chemicals, and yet somehow we have to pay for the human health impact testing? We have to show, right, so that's all on us. So it's, it's the way the laws are currently written is backwards. You know, and, and that needs to change.
0: It seems to me that it's awful naïve to suggest that with something like plastics we're going to change our behaviors to eliminate it to any significant degree. I want to know though,
1: what chemistry or what work is being done to make plastics more biodegradable? I thought there, there's um, there been changes in the formulas. There, there are people who are working on truly biodegradable plastics. The, the corn, so if you go to the store and you look at Green Wave, okay, those are corn-based. Um, And they will decompose in an industrial composting facility. There are other people who are working to make um, plastics. Because I mean, plastic ultimately, right, it's a polymer. A polymer is like a train. It's composed of these individual units that are, are held together to make this long molecule. Polymers are not unique to plastics. Plastics were actually modeled off of naturally occurring polymers. Okay, things like cellulose, the most abundant polymer in the planet, which is the building material of plants, cellulose, right? It's paper, (laughs) right? So there are naturally occurring polymers. And so it's a matter of um, modeling um, better. Um, So actually making use of these naturally occurring polymers in order to have the same properties that synthetic polymers have. And that is a difficulty. Because um, if you make them more biodegradable, They aren't as moldable. They aren't as durable. You want them to be durable when you need them to be durable, but then break down when you tell them to, (laughs) which is really difficult. Um, And there are people who are looking at things like that, so infusing particular um, uh, molecules so that if you shine a particular light, they will start to break down. Um, I actually just read a story on that, I think it was in Scientific American or the New York Times, I'm not really sure. Um, But it was uh, based upon some research that's being done, um, I think it was at the University of Michigan. Um, And they specifically, these scientists specifically said, look, we're not looking for this to replace the bags and the bottles, we're looking for this to replace, say, the foam in your car, or the dash, and, and things that are much, that are intended to be more permanent to begin with, which is great. Right, So I think that, um, that this problem is not something that you solve with one action. So I think we do need to change our behaviors in terms of the disposability of things. I don't think that's naive because we did have a society before we had bottles of water. I grew up in Texas in the south and I did not have access to bottled water, and I still survived, (laughs) okay? I went over to, to, I would be outside playing, I'd be hot, I'd go to somebody's complete stranger's house and turn on their spigot and drink water, okay? (laughs) That's how we did it, (laughs) you know? (laughs) We didn't have bottled water and we still, so we had society before we had these conveniences. So I think that that's one piece and I, it's one that I tend to talk about because I'm tenderly talking to mass public and they wanna know what can I do. And what they can do on an individual level is skip the straw, skip the bag, skip the bottle and that is um, s- around 65% of the plastic market it's a huge piece. Now, that's not the only piece, okay? And so are other things. Yes. So for your cars, our cars are all plastic, right? So we're not going to give up cars and I'm not suggesting that we should, right? <laughs> but so for that, something like that, yes, there are there are ways to make maybe plastics that are actually truly biodegradable. We also need the infrastructure to collect these things we need the infrastructure to truly recycle plastic um, and that also requires a market that's willing to buy that post-consumer plastic and right now that doesn't exist so a lot of people that I bump into and I talk to on a daily basis they say what I recycle my plastic because I put it in that bin except China isn't buying our plastic anymore so you know what's happening to that bin it's going in the landfill Plastic is a very difficult material to recycle because it's not, unlike glass, glass is silicon dioxide, largely. There are borosilicates and stuff, but largely glass is silicon dioxide. Aluminum foil is aluminum. It's one thing that makes recycling it very easy. But plastic is literally thousands of different things because you have the polymers and you have the stuff that you mix into the polymers. So every piece of plastic is different than every other piece of plastic, which means if you're sitting, if you're working in industry, and you have to make a bottle, you don't want post-consumer plastic because it's a mixture of stuff and you don't know what's in it. You want virgin material where you know exactly how much polypropylene to add, you know exactly how much of your plasticizer to add, you know exactly how much colorant, UV stabilizer, flame retardant, Everything you're gonna mix into it, you know exactly what to do because you have a recipe. But post-consumer plastic, it's a mess. It's got all sorts of stuff in it and every time you buy it, it's gonna be different, right? And so we need, there's a lot of things that have to change, right?
0: Professor Mason, thank you so much for joining us today. I'd I'd like to go back to your study of the Great Lakes and its tributaries and see if you could share with, with us some stories of very different watersheds along the Great Lakes and th- those that are more polluted. So is there a tale of two cities along the developed stretches of the Great Lakes? Or do we really have to go up to kind of Upper Peninsula or Lake Superior to find those watersheds that are really clean? W- what are some communities doing well? What could we learn from them to improve how our water, the health of our watershed here in the Cleveland area?
1: Um, So with our our 29, our biggest tributary study, we studied 29 tributaries um, into the Great Lakes. um, And we um, separated them into, based upon GIS, right, things that were tributaries that were less developed to tributaries that were more developed. And what we saw was um, higher counts, whether it was developed or undeveloped, higher counts during runoff events. So when you have a major rainstorm, you tend to see higher pollution, so runoff. Um, higher counts in developed nation developed areas versus undeveloped areas not surprising with regard to everything except for fibers so fibers microfibers I, I forget which person brought them up in the the um people that have been up on stage earlier microfibers are becoming the next big topic in microplastics so the way that microbeads were microfibers <laughs> are the next thing because we find them everywhere so in our beer tap water sea salt those were almost all fibers that we were finding very different actually than in our bottled water where we found a lot less fibers and much more fragments and things like this with fibers in the tributaries it didn't matter if it was a runoff event, if it was, or if it was uh, undeveloped or developed area, didn't matter. We found them they were basically um, same concentrations all the time. And that tells you it's a very different source. It's probably coming from the air. That's what we hypothesized um, with regard to microfibers. So that's a very different beast. But with regard to fragments and pellets and um, films and foams, our other four categories of morphologies, um, as you go from undeveloped to developed areas, you see higher runoff and as you go from a, a storm event to, yeah, um, and in terms of what can we do, um, we haven't done any studies where we, we look at that. I know San Francisco is working on one right now where they're looking at like rain gardens to see if they help to remove plastics from runoff before it makes its way into a storm drain. Um, I would love to do a storm drain study, where we collect all the stuff that runs down a storm drain and, and categorize it. Um, but there are nets that you can put on storm drains so that you are collecting stuff before it goes. Um, so I think that there are things like that. There's the water wheel right outside of Baltimore. He's, if you haven't seen it, it's in the, I think it's in the Baltimore River. And he looks like a snail. And, and as the river goes down, he pulls out trash. And so, I think that there are things like that. Um, uh, There's a trash bin that you can use for harbors, um, but it has to be emptied quite a bit. But you put it in the water, and basically, water is perpetually flowing through it. And then, if you can catch things, um, but it's a pretty small bin, so it fills up really fast with like bottles and bags and things like that. But I think there are a lot of ideas out there um, that can be looked at more. You know, but also legislation, right? Banning the bag. Something
2: like that would be good too. Hi, uh, thank you so much for coming sharing. Just as a lay um, person, a, layperson, a mm-hmm. lot of this is, I've heard about the various things you've talked about, but very little. And you mentioned some things that we can do as far as what we can stop doing. What are some things we can do? Because we're living in a society that is so um, convenience oriented. Mm-hmm. So if I have to stop bottled water, wh- uh, what are some other things that we can do uh, in order to help this process,
1: so um, I um, got my coffee mug. Jeff, you want to say like? So I carry this with me everywhere I go. So, you know, when I leave the house, I always have a container with me. And, and what I love about this stainless steel coffee mug is that I can put coffee in it, I can put water in it, I can put juice, I can put margaritas, whatever, <laughs> right? It's, I can use it for whatever, right? And so I carry that with me everywhere I go. In my purse, I carry bamboo utensils. Um, So that any time, I mean, even if we just go to like Starbucks and we want a yogurt, um, which is packaged in plastic, I understand, but we have our (laughs) utensils. um, We usually use yogurt, so I don't know why I thought of yogurt. But what what do we eat with? Pickles? Bagel, oh, for spreading the cream cheese, yes. So um, bamboo utensils, and we carry those everywhere. And so if we go to picnics or something, we have our bamboo utensils. Um, we, I also have straws, so you know, if I get like a smoothie, I have metal straws that I can use. And there's some really cool ones now that come in a little container and you pop it out. It becomes long by you pulling it out. I was just looking at it um, earlier today, and it comes with a little cleaner, too. It's really fancy. Um, So you can keep your own straw with you. Because I know some people really like to use straws, but you don't want plastic ones. Anytime I order a drink, I do say, no straw, please. Um, And I'm slowly trying to, you know, push. And half the time it comes with the straw anyway, which is really frustrating. But I generally try and pull out the straw right in front of the person and be like, here, I don't want that. You know, and again, it's about when I was a kid, I had to, as a kid, I mean, my life was rough. I had to ask for a bendy straw. It wasn't provided to me, <laughs> right? It was a rough life. And I had to drink off of people's spigots. <laughs> oh, my God, how did I survive, um, right? So, you know, by, by kind of, you know, pushing um, places to, to go without automatically giving you the straw and only giving you the straw if you ask. Because I understand there's people with disabilities. They need those things, right? I work at a university. We've gone trayless because that reduces a lot of waste. Right? And it was another thing that we had to say, well, yeah, we're going trayless, except obviously if somebody has a disability, they need a tray, you give them a tray, right? Um, So you always have to kind of make for those allowances. Um, uh, So, uh, reusable bags, you know, and if you forget your reusable bags, you know, I know it's hard. um, Either buy a new one or just carry your stuff without it. That's the best way to change the behavior. Our brains are wired. To do repetitious tasks. That's the majority of our brain, very little, it's a very small piece of the brain that can actually process doing something different. <laughs> the vast majority of our brain breathing is just, you know, blinking. You know, I mean, these are things that are very repetitious. And so, you know, it's hard to train ourselves to do new tricks. So how do you get through that, right? And one of the ways that we do it is um, embarrassment. So I've carried all of my groceries, either in my arms, out to my car. Hi, yeah, how you doing? Don't mind me, I'm just, (laughs) right? Or I've wheeled them out in my shopping cart and put them into my car one at a time. Then I get home and I have to carry them into the house. You know, and you do that enough times, and it changes you. You go, I'm not going to forget my bags. I'm going to put them in the car as soon as I finish using them, every time so that I don't have to go through this again, right? Um, and so it's, it's really you start with those simple things. If you can go, you know, a couple years without using a bag, a bottle, a straw, um, then you can start thinking, what can I do that's even bigger, right? And so literally two days ago, I bought um, toothpaste tablets so they're tablets that you put in your mouth, you crunch down, and then you start brushing your teeth and it foams up. It's in a glass bottle, local, United States, or like, yeah, US, You made in the USA <laughs> by a woman. <laughs> TSA approved, so you can carry it on when you're traveling, and no plastic, right? So you can start looking for these other things. And, and as you start sharing them, they'll pop up in your Facebook feed, right? <laughs> Just say plastic free, and all of a sudden, things will start popping up in your Facebook freeze. Bees wraps, I use bees wraps instead of saran wrap. It's reusable. You wash it, you can wrap cheese, you can wrap, you can put it over top. I think it actually works better than saran wrap in many ways. Um, reusable containers, when I go to um, a restaurant, I bring my own container. Can you, pack, can you package it in this instead of your plastic? There's a, a place I go to to get wraps, and I'm like, hey, can I have a piece of aluminum foil? They're like, oh, we have the, plast- the, the little um, eggshells right over there. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but you can't recycle those. If you give me a piece of aluminum foil, I can recycle it. And they're like, oh, okay. they roll their eyes, but they go and get it for me, right? (laughs) And then you're educating people every step of the way that you're doing these things, right? And people will ask, and I talk about it. Um, And we shouldn't underestimate our influence, right? Um, Jeff's mom and sister are, you know, going plastic-free, slowly but surely, because of me, right? They're like, I didn't know about this before you. You know, so as you talk about it, and I never, like, pushed them on it. They bought bottled water in front of me. I never said anything. And then she watched my TED Talk, and she, she texts me, Sam, I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> and I was like, that's okay, you know? And she's like, I'm never going to buy bottled water now. And I was like, yay. Right? So, you know, don't forget the influence we have on our friends and our family and our neighbors. And as we start to change, it affects other people, right? Um, and then pushing for those to happen, whether at events, right? And Jack Johnson is like he, all of his um, music shows, he goes plastic free and he gives you, you buy. <laughs> He teases me a little bit about Jack Johnson, sorry. Um, you, you buy um, a, a metal pint glass and, that, and you, you, you use that to get any of your beverages while you're at the concert, right, and then you can take it home. So there are things we can do as we're hosting events. You know, um, anytime I have a dinner party, I, I know it's hard when you have lots of people come over, but I use real dishes. You know and and I wash them, and most of my friends will bring their own, and then they'll take them with them and wash them um, by themselves but but these are things you just start thinking, what can I do? What can I do? you know and who can I talk to? you know thank you. Sure.:
0: uh, Thank you for coming and speaking. It's nice to know that my children might think someone's a little more obsessive about plastic than me, um, and something for me to aspire to uh, um, I'm curious if there's uh, any movement in the larger food industry about trying to eliminate the plastic packaging. It's one of my biggest frustrations going to the grocery store. Uh, everything's in plastic. You can't get something not in plastic. You can't bring your own containers. Uh, there are a few stores you can buy in bulk. There are a few stores popping up around the country where you can buy your items. But there's things you can't put into a reusable bag. Right. Is there anything happening in the larger food industry that might help us wean ourselves off plastic?
1: Um, not that I specifically know of, but I do know like I, I've I've started in the last few years, I can actually find peanut butter in glass again, right? And that's like like that was I love peanut butter. You have to understand how I went without peanut butter for a very long time because it was always packaged in plastic and now it's in glass. And <laughs> The heavens have opened up again. Um, So it's starting. I I found yogurt packaged in glass, too, um, which is really important because yogurt is packaged hot. And you really don't want something hot in plastic because that encourages that leaching of the chemicals from the plastic into the food product. Um, So I think it's starting to change. And I think part of the reason it's starting to change is because you have more and more people saying, how can I get this product without it being packaged in plastic? You know, writing letters to corporations, you know, I mean, I know that we think that our voice were just one person, but the more and more people we start, that's what happened with microbeads, right? Microbeads started with like one story published in a scientific journal that nobody knew about cuz how many of us read scientific journals in our free time? Uh. Okay, <laughs> right? Um, but the New York State Attorney General's Office saw it, fortunately, and then started talking about it and talking. And then I started giving talks, and then all of a sudden people were talking about it and they were sending their products back to the companies. They were writing letters, they were writing to the EPA. The EPA called me out of the blue look, this microbeads thing is really getting big. What can we do? (laughs) The evil, (laughs) you know, out of the blue. And it was because of people voicing what they want and doing it loudly, right? And so don't underestimate the importance of a letter-writing campaign to either a company or to your representative, you know, on the city, county, national, level, whatever it may be, you know, do those things. Um, and Encourage other people to do those things, right? Um, so I think the more we demand it, I think it'll start to happen. And, and I do suspect that they already see the writing on the wall, so I bet that they're looking. Um, but I haven't had anybody specifically approach me with it. Next, we have a Twitter question.
2: Okay. In this day and age where everything is a political battle, how can we ensure that conservation efforts have bipartisan support?
1: <laughs> um, I think what's important um, to remember is um, people care for different reasons, but we're all human, right? And so there's different access points to different people um, uh, on campus. Uh, Before I actually got into the plastics thing, I I started doing all of these sustainability events, and I kept realizing. And at first, I was like, oh my god, this is so great. Look at all these people. And then I realized that every event I had, it was all the same people. And I was like, I'm just preaching to the choir over and over and over again. And I've got to think of ways to reach people that I haven't reached before. So I started thinking, how, how can I do that? Um, And so I I created a a connections duathlon because runners like surfers. I mean, surfers are huge. Where's my surf rider guy? Um, There you go, right? Surf rider is huge in plastic pollution because they're in the water with all the plastic and they see it. Runners see the plastic. Bikers see the plastic. So you get at them through their sport right, and I organized an actual bike run event that, you know what, crazy, didn't have plastic. There were no plastic water bottles at the end of the race. (laughs) There was no little plastic cups on the race route handing you water, right? We talked to people about it beforehand. Hey, we're going to give you a, a reusable mug. You can use that. We'll have pitchers of water. You can drink that. There will be no water stations on the run, right? you reach them where they are. For a lot of people, it's their kids, right? People are really passionate about your kids, right? And so if you can reach them at what it is that they care about, you know, and think about the world that your children are going to grow up in, they may not have fish when they're 20 years old. That's where we're at, right? By 2050, there's going to be more plastic in the oceans than fish. That's overfishing, but that's also a huge plastic problem, right, because there's so much plastic. So imagine when you're, so talk to fishermen when they're out there fishing (laughs) with their son. Hey, imagine if your son, all he caught were plastic bottles. No fish. Right, and so you kind of I think what you really have to do is is get people where they care, because there is a lot of white noise out there, and so you know it's hard for people who are working two jobs and running from here to there, and trying to feed their kids and trying to put a roof on, literally on their head, <laughs> right, to to care about plastic pollution, but there is an access point, right, um, and so you you start you start trying to find. How, how do you get at people? And, and don't worry about their politics. Um, I've, I've spoken to a number of groups that there are Democrats and Republicans, and you know what, at the end of it, I have you know, um, uh, hunters coming up to me, generally Republican leaning, Um, And they're saying, you know, I was in the forest the other day and I saw a plastic bag in the middle of a forest. Can you believe that? (laughs) Like, yeah, I can. And you know what? If you just stop using plastic bags, we won't find them in the middle of the forest. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm not going to use plastic bags anymore. Right? Get them where it, it matters to them. Meet them where they are. Hi, my name's Oh. Hi, my name's Erin. I'm with Drink Local, Drink Tap. Thanks for everything that you do. Um, I just had a quick question about your bottled water research. Um, what was done with uh, the information that you found about how much plastic was actually in the bottled water? Have you, has anything been done with that information yet? Um, well, uh, so um, in advance of that report coming out. Um, All the bottled water industry was given a a preliminary copy, as well as the World Health Organization. And the day that our our report came out, the World Health Organization came out and said, we need to do a human health impact test. We need to understand how this is affecting human health. And so I'm very excited to see that happening on kind of the world stage, and I hope that that information... um, All of my papers, so I, I, you know, and my people who are listening on the radio don't see the slideshow, but on my slideshow, I made reference to all of our publications, and all of them are linked on my faculty webpage. I am very easy to find, just Google Sherry Mason, and I assure you, you will find way more information than you need to. (laughs) You know, but my faculty webpage will be in there somewhere, and you can link to all of those, including the bottled water study, so you can see all of the data. uh, what else has been done with it? I mean, it was, it, it was a really big, when it came out, it was, uh, it was, it was big. You know? And so there was lots and lots of talk about it. And I gave lots and lots of interviews. Um, and, and still to this day I have people emailing me on an every-other-day basis. I wanted, wanted to know about, you know. Um, ones that I find frustrating are when people say, well, what about this brand of water? Did you test this brand of water? It's like, well, did you, the, the, the point of the story is that it doesn't matter which brand of water you're drinking. It's all got plastic in it, you know. So, no, we didn't test every single brand, but it doesn't matter. You know, we tested enough. Every single brand had plastic. Right, so there might be an individual bottle of Nestle Pure Life that didn't have plastic, but the very next bottle did. And that's how it was. Um, And I picked out Nestle Pure Life because they were the worst. (laughs) 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 They had had one bottle that had like 10,000 pieces of plastic. It was really bad. Yeah, it was crazy. It was really bad. So.
2: (laughs) Today at the City Club, we've been enjoying our 2018 State of the Great Lakes Forum with Dr. Sherry A. Mason, Professor of Chemistry and Chair of the Department of Geology and Environmental Sciences at the State University of New York at Fredonia. The State of the Great Lakes Forum is sponsored by the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District with additional support from cleveland.com. Today's forum is also part of our Sustainable NEO Series sponsored by Bank of America and the Great Lakes Brewing Company. We have representatives from all our sponsoring organizations with us today, and we appreciate your continued support of City Club programming. Today's forum is the Cyrus Eaton Memorial Forum, made possible by a generous endowment grant from the Cyrus Eaton Foundation. We thank them for their continued support of the City Club. Our community partners for today are the Cleveland Water Alliance and Sustainable Cleveland 2019. Our hospitality partner is the Metropolitan at the Nine Hotel, and we appreciate their partnership. And that brings us to the end of today's annual State of the Great Lakes Forum. Thank you, Dr. Mason. Thank you, everyone, for attending. This forum is now adjourned.
0: For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org.